0: This is Audible.
1: Simon & Schuster Audio presents The Codebreaker Jennifer Doudna Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race by Walter Isaacson Read by Kata Mazer and Walter Isaacson
0: Introduction Into the Breach. Jennifer Doudna couldn't sleep. Berkeley, the university where she was a superstar for her role in inventing the gene editing technology known as CRISPR, had just shut down its campus because of the fast spreading coronavirus pandemic. Against her better judgment, she had driven her son, Andy, a high school senior, to the train station so he could go to Fresno for a robot-building competition. Now, at 2 a.m., she roused her husband and insisted they retrieve him before the start of the match, when more than 1,200 kids would be gathering in an indoor convention center. They pulled on their clothes, got in the car, found an open gas station, and made the three-hour drive. Andy an only child, was not happy to see them, but they convinced him to pack up and come home. As they pulled out of the parking lot, Andy got a text from the team. Robotics match canceled. All kids to leave immediately. This was the moment, Doudna recalls, that she realized her world and the world of science had changed the government was fumbling its response to COVID, so it was time for professors and graduate students, clutching their test tubes and raising their pipettes high, to rush into the breach. The next day, Friday, March thirteenth, 2020, she led a meeting of Berkeley colleagues and other scientists in the Bay Area to discuss what roles they might play. A dozen of them made their way across the abandoned Berkeley campus and converged on the sleek stone-and-glass building that housed her lab. The chairs in the ground-floor conference room were clustered together, so the first thing they did was to move them six feet apart. Then they turned on a video system so that 50 other researchers from nearby universities could join by Zoom. As she stood in front of the room to rally them, Doudna displayed an intensity that she usually kept masked by a calm facade. This is not something that academics typically do, she told them. We need to step up. It was fitting that a virus-fighting team would be led by a CRISPR pioneer. The gene-editing tool that Doudna and others developed in 2012 is based on a virus-fighting trick used by bacteria, which have been battling viruses for more than a billion years. In their DNA, bacteria develop clustered, repeated sequences, known as CRISPRs, that can remember and then destroy viruses that attack them. In other words, it's an immune system that can adapt itself to fight each new wave of viruses, just what we humans need in an era that has been plagued, as if we were still in the Middle Ages, by repeated viral epidemics. Always prepared and methodical, Doudna presented slides that suggested ways that they may take on the coronavirus. She led by listening. Although she had become a science celebrity, people felt comfortable engaging with her she had mastered the art of being tightly scheduled while still finding the time to connect with people emotionally. The first team that Dowden assembled was given the job of creating a coronavirus testing lab. One of the leaders she tapped was a postdoc named Jennifer Hamilton, who, a few months earlier, had spent a day teaching me how to use CRISPR to edit human genes. I was pleased, but also a bit unnerved, To see how easy it was. Even I could do it." Another team was given the mission of developing new types of coronavirus tests based on CRISPR. It helped that Doudna liked commercial enterprises. Three years earlier, she and two of her graduate students had started a company to use CRISPR as a tool for detecting viral diseases. In launching an effort to find new tests to detect the coronavirus, Downer was opening another front in her fierce but fruitful struggle with a cross-country competitor. Feng Zhang, a charming young China-born and Iowa-raised researcher at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, had been her rival in the 2012 race to turn CRISPR into a gene-editing tool. And ever since, they had been locked in an intense competition to make scientific discoveries and form CRISPR-based companies. Now, with the outbreak of the pandemic, they would engage in another race. But this one spurred not by the pursuit of patents, but by a desire to do good. Doudna settled on ten projects. She suggested leaders for each and told the others to sort themselves into teams. They should pair up with someone who would perform the same functions so that there could be a battlefield promotion system. If any of them were struck by the virus, there would be somebody to step in and continue their work. It was the last time they would meet in person. From then on, the teams would collaborate by Zoom and Slack. I'd like everybody to get started soon, she said. Really soon. Don't worry, one of the participants assured her. Nobody's got any travel plans. What none of the participants discussed was a longer range prospect using CRISPR to engineer inheritable edits in humans that would make our children and all of our descendants less vulnerable to virus infections. These genetic improvements could permanently alter the human race. That's in the realm of science fiction, Doudna said dismissively when I raised the topic after the meeting. Yes, I agreed. It's a bit like Brave New World or Gattaca. But as with any good science fiction, elements have already come true. In November 2018, a young Chinese scientist who had been to some of Doudna's gene-editing conferences, used CRISPR to edit embryos and remove a gene that produces a receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. It led to the birth of twin girls, the world's first designer babies. There was an immediate outburst of awe and then shock arms flailed, committees convened, after more than three billion years of evolution of life on this planet, one species, us, had developed the talent and temerity to grab control of its own genetic future. There was a sense that we had crossed the threshold into a whole new age, perhaps a brave new world, like when Adam and Eve bit into the apple, or Prometheus, Snatch fire from the gods. Our newfound ability to make edits to our genes raises some fascinating questions. Should we edit our species to make us less susceptible to deadly viruses? Yeah, what a wonderful boon that would be, right? Should we use gene editing to eliminate dreaded disorders such as Huntington's, sickle cell anemia, and cystic fibrosis? Well, that sounds good, too. And what about deafness or blindness or being short or depressed? Hmm, how would we think about that? A few decades from now, if it becomes possible and safe, should we allow parents to enhance the IQ and muscles of their kids? Should we let them decide eye color, skin color, height? Whoa, (laughs) let's pause for a moment before we slide all of the way down this slippery slope. What might that do to the diversity of our societies? If we are no longer subject to a random natural lottery when it comes to our endowments, will it weaken our feelings of empathy and acceptance? If these offerings at the genetic supermarket aren't free, and they won't be, will that greatly increase inequality and indeed encode it permanently in the human race? Given these issues, should such decisions be left solely to individuals, or should society as a whole have some say? Perhaps we should develop some rules. By we, I mean we, all of us, including you and me. Figuring out if and when to edit our genes will be one of the most consequential questions of the 21st century so I thought it would be useful to understand how it's done. Likewise, recurring waves of virus epidemics make it important to understand the life sciences. There's a joy that springs from fathoming how something works, especially when that something is ourselves. Doudna relished that joy, and so can we. That's what this book is about. The invention of CRISPR and the plague of COVID will hasten our transition to the third great revolution of modern times. These revolutions arose from the discovery, beginning just over a century ago, of three fundamental kernels of our existence. The atom, the bit, and the gene. The first half of the 20th century, beginning with Albert Einstein's 1905 papers on relativity and quantum theory, featured a revolution driven by physics. In the five decades following his miracle year, his theories led to atom bombs and nuclear power, transistors and spaceships, lasers and radar. The second half of the 20th century was an information technology era based on the idea that all information could be encoded by binary digits, known as bits, and that all logical processes could be performed by circuits with on-off switches. In the 1950s, this led to the development of the microchip, the computer, and the Internet, when these three innovations were combined, the digital revolution was born. Now we've entered a third, an even more momentous era, a life science revolution. Children who study digital coding will be joined by those who study genetic code. When Dowdner was a graduate student in the 1990s, Other biologists were racing to map the genes that are coded by our DNA. But she became more interested in DNA's less celebrated sibling, RNA. It's the molecule that actually does the work in a cell by copying some of the instructions coded by the DNA and using them to build proteins. Her quest to understand RNA led her to that most fundamental question. How did life begin? She studied RNA molecules that could replicate themselves, which raised the possibility that in the stew of chemicals on this planet four billion years ago, they started to reproduce even before DNA came along. As a biochemist at Berkeley studying the molecules of life, she focused on figuring out their structure. If you're a detective, the most basic clues in a biological who-done-it come from discovering how a molecule's twists and folds determine the way it interacts with other molecules. In Doudna's case, that meant studying the structure of RNA. It was an echo of the work Rosalind Franklin had done with DNA, which was used by James Watson and Francis Crick to discover the double helix structure of DNA in 1953. As it happens, Watson, a complex figure, would weave in and out of Doudna's life. Doudna's experience in RNA led to a call from a biologist at Berkeley who was studying the CRISPR system that bacteria developed in their battle against viruses. Like a lot of basic science discoveries, it turned out to have practical applications. Some were rather ordinary, such as protecting the bacteria in yogurt cultures. But in 2012, Doudna and others figured out a more earth-shattering use. How to turn CRISPR into a tool to edit genes. CRISPR is now being used to treat sickle cell anemia, cancers, and blindness. And in 2020, Doudna and her teams began exploring how CRISPR could detect and destroy the coronavirus. CRISPR evolved in bacteria because of their long-running war against viruses, Doudna says. We humans don't have time to wait for our own cells to evolve natural resistance to this virus, so we have to use our ingenuity to do that. Isn't it fitting that one of the tools is this ancient bacterial immune system called CRISPR? Nature is beautiful that way. I, yes, remember that phrase. Nature is beautiful. That's another theme of this book. There are other star players in the field of gene editing. Most of them deserve to be the focus of biographies or perhaps even movies. The Elevator Pitch, A Beautiful Mind meets Jurassic Park. They play important roles in this book because I want to show that science is a team sport. But I also want to show the impact that a persistent, sharply inquisitive, stubborn, and edgily competitive player can have. With a smile that sometimes, but not always, masked the weariness in her eyes, Jennifer Dowdner turned out to be a great, central character. She has the instincts to be collaborative, as any scientist must, but ingrained in her character is a competitive streak, which most great innovators have. With her emotions usually tightly controlled, she wears her star status lightly. Her life story as a researcher, Nobel Prize winner, and public policy thinker connects the CRISPR tale to some larger historical threats, including the role of women in science. Her work also illustrates, as Leonardo da Vinci's did, that the key to innovation is connecting your curiosity about basic science to the practical work of devising tools that can be applied to our lives, moving discoveries from lab bench to bedside. By telling her story, I hope to give an up-close look at how science works. What actually happens in a lab? To what extent do discoveries depend on individual genius? And to what extent has teamwork become more critical? Has the competition for prizes and patents undermined collaboration? Most of all, I want to convey the importance of basic science meaning quests that are curiosity-driven rather than application-oriented. Curiosity-driven research into the wonders of nature plants the seeds, sometimes in unpredictable ways, for later innovations. Research about surface state physics eventually led to the transistor and microchip. Likewise, studies of an astonishing method that bacteria used to fight off viruses eventually led to a gene-editing tool and techniques that humans can use in their own struggle against viruses. It's a story filled with the biggest of questions, from the origins of life to the future of the human race. And it begins with a sixth-grade girl who loves searching for sleeping grass and other fascinating phenomena amid the lava rocks of Hawaii, coming home from school one day and finding on her bed a detective tale about the people who discovered what they proclaimed to be, with only a little exaggeration, the secret of life.
1: Part 1. The Origins of Life The Lord God made a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had made. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is beautiful and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Chapter 1. Hilo. Howley. Had she grown up in any other part of America, Jennifer Dowdna might have felt like a regular kid. But in Hilo, an old town in a volcano-studded region of the big island of Hawaii, the fact that she was blonde, blue-eyed, and lanky made her feel, she later said, like I was a complete freak. She was teased by the other kids, especially the boys, because unlike them, she had hair on her arms. They called her a howley, a term that, though not quite as bad as it sounds, was often used as a pejorative for non-natives. It embedded in her a slight crust of wariness just below the surface of what would later become a genial and charming demeanor. A tale that became part of the family lore involved one of Jennifer's great-grandmothers, She was part of a family of three brothers and three sisters. Their parents could not afford for all six to go to school, so they decided to send the three girls. One became a teacher in Montana and kept a diary that has been handed down over the generations. It is filled with tales of perseverance, broken bones, working in the family store, and other frontier endeavors. She was crusty and stubborn and had a pioneering spirit, said Jennifer's sister Sarah, the current generation's keeper of the diary. Jennifer was likewise one of three sisters, but there were no brothers. As the oldest, she was doted on by her father, Martin Doudna, who sometimes referred to his children as Jennifer and the Girls. She was born February 19, 1964, in Washington, D.C., where her father worked as a speechwriter for the Department of Defense. He yearned to be a professor of American literature, so he moved to Ann Arbor with his wife, a community college teacher named Dorothy, and enrolled at the University of Michigan. When he earned his doctorate, he applied for 50 jobs and got only one offer from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. So he borrowed $900 from his wife's retirement fund and moved his family there in August 1971, when Jennifer was seven. Many creative people, including most of those I have chronicled, such as Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger, and Steve Jobs, grew up feeling alienated from their surroundings. That was the case for Doudna as a young, blonde girl among the Polynesians in Hilo. "'I was really, really alone and isolated at school,' she says. In the third grade, she felt so ostracized that she had trouble eating.' I had all sorts of digestive problems that I later realized were stress-related. Kids would tease me every day. She retreated into books and developed a defensive layer. There's an internal part of me they'll never touch, she told herself. Like many others who have felt like an outsider, she developed a wide-ranging curiosity about how we humans fit into creation. My formative experience was trying to figure out who I was in the world and how to fit in in some way, she later said. Fortunately, this sense of alienation did not become too ingrained. Life as a school kid got better. She developed a genial spirit, and the scar tissue of her early childhood began to fade. It would become inflamed only on rare occasions when some act, an end run on a patent application a male business colleague being secretive or misleading, scratched deeply enough. Blossoming The improvement began halfway through third grade, when her family moved from the heart of Hilo to a new development of cookie-cutter houses that had been carved into a forested slope further up the flanks of the Mauna Loa volcano. She switched from a large school with 60 kids per grade to a smaller one with only 20. They were studying U.S. history, a subject that made her feel more connected. It was a turning point, she recalled. She thrived so well that by the time she was in fifth grade, her math and science teacher urged that she skip ahead. So her parents moved her into sixth grade. That year, she finally made a close friend, one she kept throughout her life. Lisa Hinckley, now Lisa Twig-Smith, was from a classic mixed-race Hawaiian family, part Scottish, Danish, Chinese, and Polynesian. She knew how to handle the bullies. When someone would call me a effing Howley, I would cringe, Dowdna recalled. But when a bully called Lisa names, she would turn and look right at him and give it right back to him. I decided I wanted to be that way. One day in class, the students were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up. Lisa proclaimed that she wanted to be a skydiver. I thought, that is so cool. I couldn't imagine answering that. She was very bold in a way that I wasn't, and I decided to try to be bold as well. Doudna and Hinckley spent their afternoons riding bikes and hiking through sugarcane fields. The biology was lush and diverse, moss and mushrooms, peach and oranga palms. They found meadows filled with lava rocks covered in ferns. In the lava flow caves, there lived a species of spider with no eyes. How, Doudna wondered, did it come to be? She was also intrigued by a thorny vine called hila hila, or sleeping grass, because its fern-like leaves curl up when touched. I asked myself, she recalls, what causes the leaves to close when you touch them? We all see nature's wonders every day, whether it be a plant that moves or a sunset that reaches with pink fingers into a sky of deep blue. The key to true curiosity is pausing to ponder the causes. What makes a sky blue or a sunset pink or a leaf of sleeping grass curl? Doudna soon found someone who could help answer such questions. Her parents were friends with a biology professor named Don Hemis, and they would all go on nature walks together. We took excursions to Waipio Valley and other sites on the Big Island to look for mushrooms, which was my scientific interest, Hemis recalls. After photographing the fungi, he would pull out his reference books and show Doudna how to identify them. He also collected microscopic shells from the beach, and he would work with her to categorize them so they could try to figure out how they evolved. Her father bought her a horse, a chestnut gelding named Mokihana, after a Hawaiian tree with a fragrant fruit. She joined the soccer team, playing halfback, a position that was hard to fill on her team because it required a runner with long legs and lots of stamina. That's a good analogy to how I've approached my work, she said. I've looked for opportunities where I can fill a niche where there aren't too many other people with the same skill sets. Math was her favorite class because working through proofs reminded her of detective work. She also had a happy and passionate high school biology teacher, Marlene Hapai, who was wonderful at communicating the joy of discovery. She taught us that science was about a process of figuring things out, Doudna says. Although she began doing well academically, she did not feel that there were high expectations in her small school. I didn't get the sense that the teachers really expected very much of me, she said. She had an interesting immune response. The lack of challenges made her feel free to take more chances. I decided you just have to go for it, because what the hell, she recalled. It made me more willing to take on risks, which is something I later did in science when I chose projects to pursue. Her father was the one person who pushed her. He saw his oldest daughter as his kindred spirit in the family, the intellectual who was bound for college and an academic career. I always felt like I was the son that he wanted to have, she says. I was treated a bit differently than my sisters. James Watson's The Double Helix Doudna's father was a voracious reader who would check out a stack of books from the local library each Saturday and finish them by the following weekend. His favorite writers were Emerson and Thoreau. But as Jennifer was growing up, he became more aware that the books he assigned to his class were mostly by men. So he added Doris Lessing, Anne Tyler, and Joan Didion to his syllabus. Often he would bring home a book, either from the library or the local secondhand bookstore, for her to read. And that is how a used paperback copy of James Watson's The Double Helix ended up on her bed one day when she was in sixth grade, waiting for her when she got home from school. She put the book aside, thinking it was a detective tale. When she finally got around to reading it on a rainy Saturday afternoon, she discovered that she was right, in a sense, As she sped through the pages, she became enthralled with what was an intensely personal detective drama, filled with vividly portrayed characters about ambition and competition in the pursuit of nature's inner truths. When I finished, my father discussed it with me, she recalls. He liked the story and especially the very personal side of it, the human side of doing that kind of research. In the book, Watson dramatized and over-dramatized how as a 24-year-old bumptious biology student from the American Midwest, he ended up at Cambridge University in England, bonded with the biochemist Francis Crick, and together won the race to discover the structure of DNA in 1953. Written in the sparky narrative style of a brash American who has mastered the English after-dinner art of being self-deprecating and boastful at the same time, the book manages to smuggle a large dollop of science into a gossipy narrative about the foibles of famous professors, along with the pleasures of flirting, tennis, lab experiments, and afternoon tea. In addition to the role of lucky naive that he once concocted as his own persona in the book, Watson's other most interesting character is Rosalind Franklin, a structural biologist and crystallographer, whose data he used without her permission. Displaying the casual sexism of the 1950s, Watson refers to her condescendingly as Rosie, a name she never used, and pokes fun at her severe appearance and chilly personality. Yet he also is generous in his respect for her mastery of the complex science and beautiful art of using X-ray diffraction to discover the structure of molecules. I guess I noticed she was treated a bit condescendingly, but what mainly struck me was that a woman could be a great scientist, Doudna says. It may sound a bit crazy. I guess I must have heard about Marie Curie. But reading the book was the first time I really thought about it, and it was an eye-opener. Women could be scientists. The book also led Doudna to realize something about nature that was at once both logical and awe-inspiring. There were biological mechanisms that governed living things, including the wondrous phenomena that caught her eye when she hiked through the rainforests. Growing up in Hawaii, I had always liked hunting with my dad for interesting things in nature, like the sleeping grass that curls up when you touch it, she recalls. The book made me realize you could also hunt for the reasons why nature worked the way it did. Doudna's career would be shaped by the insight that is at the core of the double helix. The shape and structure of a chemical molecule determine what biological role it can play. It is an amazing revelation for those who are interested in uncovering the fundamental secrets of life. It is the way that chemistry, the study of how atoms bond to create molecules, becomes biology In a larger sense, her career would also be shaped by the realization that she was right when she first saw the double helix on her bed and thought that it was one of those detective mysteries that she loved. I have always loved mystery stories, she noted years later. Maybe that explains my fascination with science, which is humanity's attempt to understand the longest-running mystery we know, the origin and function of the natural world and our place in it. Even though her school didn't encourage girls to become scientists, she decided that it was what she wanted to do. Driven by a passion to understand how nature works and by a competitive desire to turn discoveries into inventions, she would help make what Watson, with his typical grandiosity cloaked in the pretense of humility, would later tell her was the most important biological advance since the double helix. Chapter 2. The Gene Darwin The paths that led Watson and Crick to the discovery of DNA structure were pioneered a century earlier, in the 1850s, when the English naturalist Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species and Gregor Mendel, an underemployed priest in Brno, now part of the Czech Republic, began breeding peas in the garden of his abbey. The beaks of Darwin's finches and the traits of Mendel's peas gave birth to the idea of the gene, an entity inside of living organisms that carries the code of heredity. Darwin had originally planned to follow the career path of his father and grandfather, who were distinguished doctors, but he found himself horrified by the sight of blood and the screams of a strapped-down child undergoing surgery, so he quit medical school and began studying to become an Anglican parson, another calling for which he was uniquely unsuited. His true passion, ever since he began collecting specimens at age eight, was to be a naturalist. He got his opportunity in 1831, when, at age 22, he was offered the chance to ride as the gentleman collector on a round-the-world voyage of the privately funded brig Sloop HMS Beagle. In 1835, four years into the five-year journey, the Beagle explored a dozen or so tiny islands of the Galapagos off the Pacific coast of South America. There, Darwin collected carcasses of what he recorded as finches, blackbirds, gross beaks, mockingbirds, and wrens. But two years later, After he returned to England, he was informed by the ornithologist John Gould that the birds were, in fact, different species of finches. Darwin began to formulate the theory that they had all evolved from a common ancestor. He knew that horses and cows near his childhood home in rural England were occasionally born with slight variations, and over the years, breeders would select the best to produce herds with more desirable traits. Perhaps nature did the same thing. He called it natural selection. In certain isolated locales, such as the islands of the Galapagos, he theorized, a few mutations, he used the playful term sports, would occur in each generation, and a change in conditions might make them more likely to win the competition for scarce food and thus be more likely to reproduce. Suppose a species of finch had a beak suited for eating fruit, but then a drought destroyed the fruit trees. A few random variants with beaks better suited for cracking nuts would thrive. Under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable ones to be destroyed, he wrote. The results of this would be the formation of a new species. Darwin was hesitant to publish his theory because it was so heretical. But competition acted as a spur, as often happens in the history of science. In 1858, Alfred Russell Wallace, a younger naturalist, sent Darwin a draft of a paper that proposed a similar theory. Darwin rushed to get a paper of his own ready for publication, and they agreed that they would present their work on the same day, at an upcoming meeting of a prominent scientific society. Darwin and Wallace had a key trait that is a catalyst for creativity. They had wide-ranging interests and were able to make connections between different disciplines. Both had traveled to exotic places where they observed the variation of species. And both had read An Essay on the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus, an English economist. Malthus argued that the human population was likely to grow faster than the food supply the resulting overpopulation would lead to famine that would weed out the weaker and poorer people. Darwin and Wallace realized this could be applied to all species and thus led to a theory of evolution driven by the survival of the fittest. I happened to read for amusement Malthus on population and it at once struck me that under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable ones to be destroyed, Darwin recalled. As the science fiction writer and biochemistry professor Isaac Asimov later noted concerning the genesis of evolutionary theory, what you needed was someone who studied species, read Malthus, and had the ability to make a cross-connection. The realization that species evolved through mutations and natural selection left a big question to be answered. What was the mechanism? How could a beneficial variation in the beak of a finch or the neck of a giraffe occur? And then how could it get passed along to future generations? Darwin thought that organisms might have tiny particles that contained hereditary information, and he speculated that the information from a male and female blended together in an embryo. But he soon realized, as did others, that this would mean that any new beneficial trait would be diluted over generations, rather than be passed along intact. Darwin had in his personal library a copy of an obscure scientific journal that contained an article, written in 1866, with the answer. But he never got around to reading it, nor did almost any other scientist at the time. Mendel The author was Gregor Mendel, a short, plump monk born in 1822 whose parents were German-speaking farmers in Moravia, then part of the Austrian Empire. He was better at puttering around the garden of the Abbey in Brno than being a parish priest. He spoke little Czech and was too shy to be a good pastor. So he decided to become a math and science teacher. Unfortunately, he repeatedly failed his qualifying exams. Even after studying at the University of Vienna, his performance on one biology exam was especially dreadful. With little else to do after his final failure at passing the exams, Mendel retreated to the Abbey Garden to pursue what had become his obsessive interest in breeding peas. In previous years, he had concentrated on creating purebreds. His plants had seven traits that came in two variations— yellow or green seeds, white or violet flowers, smooth or wrinkled seeds, and so on. By careful selection, he produced purebred vines that had, for example, only violet flowers or only wrinkled seeds. The following year, he experimented with something new, breeding together plants with differing traits, such as those that had white flowers with those that had violet ones, It was a painstaking task that involved snipping off each of the plant's receptors with forceps and using a tiny brush to transfer pollen. What his experiments showed was momentous, given what Darwin was writing at the time. There was no blending of traits. Tall plants crossbred with short ones did not produce medium-sized offspring, nor did purple-flowered plants crossbred with white-flowered ones produced some pale, mauve hue. Instead, all the offspring of a tall and a short plant were tall. The offspring from purple flowers, crossbred with white flowers, produced only purple flowers. Mendel called these the dominant traits. The ones that did not prevail, he called recessive. An even bigger discovery came the following summer, when he produced offspring from his hybrids, Although the first generation of hybrids had displayed only the dominant traits, such as all-purple flowers or tall stems, the recessive trait reappeared in the next generation, and his records revealed a pattern. In this second generation, the dominant trait was displayed in three out of four cases, with the recessive trait appearing once. When a plant inherited two dominant versions of the gene, or a dominant and a recessive version, it would display the dominant trait. But if it happened to get two recessive versions of the gene, it would display that less common trait. Science advances are propelled by publicity. The quiet Friar Mendel, however, seemed to have been born under a vanishing cap. He presented his paper in 1865 in two monthly installments to 40 farmers and plant breeders of the Natural Science Society in Berno, which later published it in its annual journal. It was rarely cited between then and 1900, at which point it was rediscovered by scientists performing similar experiments. The findings of Mendel and these subsequent scientists led to the concept of a unit of heredity, what a Danish botanist named Wilhelm Johansen in 1905 dubbed a gene. There was apparently some molecule that encoded bits of hereditary information. Painstakingly, over many decades, scientists studied living cells to try to determine what molecule that might be. Chapter 3. DNA Scientists initially assumed that genes are carried by proteins. After all, Proteins do most of the important tasks in organisms. They eventually figured out, however, that it is another common substance in living cells, nucleic acids, that are the workhorses of heredity. These molecules are composed of a sugar, phosphates, and four substances, called bases that are strung together in chains. They come in two varieties, ribonucleic acid, RNA, and a similar molecule that lacks one oxygen atom and thus is called deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. From an evolutionary perspective, both the simplest coronavirus and the most complex human are essentially protein-wrapped packages that contain and seek to replicate the genetic material encoded by their nucleic acids. The primary discovery that fingered DNA as the Repository of Genetic Information, was made in 1944 by the biochemist Oswald Avery and his colleagues at Rockefeller University in New York. They extracted DNA from a strain of bacteria, mixed it with another strain, and showed that the DNA transmitted inheritable transformations. The next step in solving the mystery of life was figuring out how DNA did it. That required deciphering the clue that is fundamental to all of nature's mysteries. Determining the exact structure of DNA, how all the atoms fit together and what shape resulted, could explain how it worked. It was a task that required mixing three disciplines that had emerged in the 20th century, genetics, biochemistry, and structural biology. James Watson As a middle-class Chicago boy breezing through public school, James Watson was wickedly smart and cheeky. This ingrained in him a tendency to be intellectually provocative, which would later serve him well as a scientist, but less so as a public figure. Throughout his life, his rapid-fire mumbling of unfinished sentences would convey his impatience and inability to filter his impulsive notions. He later said that one of the most important lessons his parents taught him was, hypocrisy in search of social acceptance erodes your self-respect. He learned it too well. From his childhood into his 90s, he was brutally outspoken in his assertions, both right and wrong, which made him sometimes socially unacceptable, but never lacking in self-respect. His passion growing up was bird-watching and when he won three war bonds on the radio show Quiz Kids, he used them to buy a pair of Bausch and Loam binoculars. He would rise before dawn to go with his father to Jackson Park, spend two hours seeking rare warblers, and then take the trolley to the lab school, a cauldron of whiz Kids. At the University of Chicago, which he entered at 15, he planned to indulge his love of birds and his aversion to chemistry. By becoming an ornithologist. But in his senior year, he read a review of What is Life?, in which the quantum physicist Erwin Schrödinger turned his attention to biology to argue that discovering the molecular structures of a gene would show how it hands down hereditary information through generations. Watson checked the book out of the library the next morning and was thenceforth obsessed with understanding the gene. With modest grades, he was rejected when he applied to study for a doctorate at Caltech and was not offered a stipend by Harvard. So he went to Indiana University, which had built, partly by recruiting Jews who were having trouble getting tenure on the East Coast, one of the nation's best genetic departments, starring the future Nobel Prize winner Herman Muller and the Italian émigre Salvador Luria. With Luria as his Ph.D. advisor, Watson studied viruses. These tiny packets of genetic material are essentially lifeless on their own. But when they invade a living cell, they hijack its machinery and multiply themselves. The easiest of these viruses to study are the ones that attack bacteria. And they were dubbed, remember the term, for it will reappear when we discuss the discovery of CRISPR, phages which was short for bacteriophages, meaning bacteria eaters. Watson joined Luria's international circle of biologists, known as the Phage Group. Luria positively abhorred most chemists, especially the competitive variety out of the jungles of New York City, said Watson. But Luria soon realized that figuring out phages would require chemistry, so he helped Watson get a postdoctoral fellowship to study the subject in Copenhagen. Bored and unable to understand the mumbling chemist who was supervising his studies, Watson took a break from Copenhagen in the spring of 1951 to attend a meeting in Naples on the molecules found in living cells. Most of the presentations went over his head, but he found himself fascinated by a lecture by Morris Wilkins, a biochemist at King's College, London. Wilkins specialized in crystallography and X-ray diffraction. In other words, he took a liquid that was saturated with molecules, allowed it to cool, and purified the crystals that formed. Then he tried to figure out the structure of those crystals. If you shine a light on an object from different angles, you can figure out its structure by studying the shadows it casts. X-ray crystallographers do something similar. They shine an X-ray on a crystal from many different angles and record the shadows and diffraction patterns. In the slide that Wilkins showed at the end of his Naples speech, that technique had been used on DNA. Suddenly, I was excited about chemistry, Watson recalled. I knew that genes could crystallize. Hence, they must have a regular structure that could be solved in a straightforward fashion. For the next couple of days, Watson stalked Wilkins with the hope of cadging an invitation to join his lab, but to no avail. Francis Crick Instead, Watson was able, in the fall of 1951, to become a postdoctoral student at Cambridge University's Cavendish Laboratory which was directed by the pioneering crystallographer Sir Lawrence Bragg, who more than 30 years earlier had become, and still is, the youngest person to win a Nobel Prize in science. He and his father, with whom he shared the prize, discovered the basic mathematical law of how crystals diffract X-rays. At the Cavendish Lab, Watson met Francis Crick, forming one of history's most powerful bonds between two scientists. A biochemical theorist who had served in World War II, Crick had reached the ripe age of 36 without having secured his Ph.D. Nevertheless, he was sure enough of his instincts and careless enough about Cambridge manners that he was unable to refrain from correcting his colleague's sloppy thinking and then crowing about it. As Watson memorably put it in the opening sentence of The Double Helix, I have never seen Francis Crick in a modest mood. It was a line that could likewise have been written of Watson, and they admired each other's immodesty more than their colleagues did. A youthful arrogance, a ruthlessness, and an impatience with sloppy thinking came naturally to both of us, Crick recalled. Crick shared Watson's belief that discovering the structure of DNA would provide the key to the mysteries of heredity. Soon they were lunching together on shepherd's pie and talking volubly at the Eagle, a well-worn pub near the labs. Crick had a boisterous laugh and booming voice, which drove Sir Lawrence to distraction. So Watson and Crick were assigned to a pale brick room of their own. They were complementary strands, Interlocked by irreverence, zaniness, and fiery brilliance, the writer-physician Siddhartha Mukherjee noted. They despised authority, but craved its affirmation. They found the scientific establishment ridiculous and plodding, yet they knew how to insinuate themselves into it. They imagined themselves quintessential outsiders, yet felt most comfortable sitting in the inner quadrangles of Cambridge colleges, They were self-appointed jesters in a court of fools. The Caltech biochemist Linus Pauling had just rocked the scientific world and paved the way for his first Nobel Prize by figuring out the structure of proteins using a combination of X-ray crystallography, his understanding of the quantum mechanics of chemical bonds, and tinker toy model building. Over their lunches at the Eagle, Watson and Crick plotted how to use the same tricks to beat Pauling in the race to discover the structure of DNA. They even had the tool shop of the Cavendish Lab cut tin plates and copper wires to represent the atoms and other components for the desktop model they planned to tinker with until they got all the elements and bonds correct. One obstacle was that they would be treading on the territory of Morris Wilkins, the King's College London biochemist, whose X-ray photograph of a DNA crystal had piqued Watson's interest in Naples. The English sense of fair play would not allow Francis to move in on Morris's problem, Watson wrote. In France, where fair play obviously did not exist, these problems would not have arisen. The states also would not have permitted such a situation to develop. Wilkins, for his part, seemed in no rush to beat Pauling. He was in an awkward internal struggle, both dramatized and trivialized in Watson's book, with a brilliant new colleague who in 1951 had come to work at King's College London, Rosalind Franklin, a 31-year-old English biochemist who had learned X-ray diffraction techniques while studying in Paris. She had been lured to King's College With the understanding that she would lead a team studying DNA. Wilkins, who was four years older and already studying DNA, was under the impression that she was coming as a junior colleague who would help him with X ray diffraction. This resulted in a combustible situation. Within months, they were barely speaking to each other. The sexist structure at King's helped keep them apart. There were two faculty lounges, one for men and the other for women the latter unbearably dingy, and the former a venue for elegant lunches. Franklin was a focused scientist, sensibly dressed. As a result, she ran afoul of English academia's fondness for eccentrics and its tendency to look at women through a sexual lens, attitudes apparent in Watson's descriptions of her. Though her features were strong, she was not unattractive, and might have been quite stunning had she taken even a mild interest in clothes, he wrote. This she did not. There was never lipstick to contrast with her straight black hair, while at the age of 31, her dresses showed all the imagination of English blue-stocking adolescents. Franklin refused to share her X-ray diffraction pictures with Wilkins or anyone else. But in November 1951, she scheduled a lecture to summarize her latest findings. Wilkins invited Watson to take the train down from Cambridge. She spoke to an audience of about 15 in a quick, nervous style, he recalled. There was not a trace of warmth or frivolity in her words. And yet I could not regard her as totally uninteresting. Momentarily, I wondered how she would look if she took off her glasses and did something novel with her hair. Then, however, my main concern was her description of the crystalline X-ray diffraction pattern. Watson briefed Crick the next morning. He had not taken notes, which annoyed Crick, and thus was vague about many key points, particularly the water content that Franklin had found in her DNA samples. Nevertheless, Crick started scribbling diagrams, declaring that Franklin's data indicated a structure of two, three, or four strands twisted in a helix. He thought that, by playing with different models, they might soon discover the answer. Within a week, they had what they thought was a solution, even though it meant that some of the atoms were crushed together a little too close. Three strands swirled in the middle, and the four bases jutted outward from this backbone. In a fit of hubris, they invited Wilkins and Franklin to come up to Cambridge and take a look. The two arrived the next morning, and with little small talk, Crick began to display the triple helix structure. Franklin immediately saw that it was flawed. You're wrong, for the following reasons, she said, her words ripping like those of an exasperated teacher. She insisted that her pictures of DNA did not show that the molecule was helical. On that point, she would turn out to be wrong. But her other two objections were correct. The twisting backbones had to be on the outside, not inside, and the proposed model did not contain enough water. At this stage, the embarrassing fact came out that my recollection of the water content of Rosie's DNA samples could not be right. Watson dryly noted. Wilkins, momentarily bonding with Franklin, told her that if they left for the station right away, they could make the 340 train back to London, which they did. Not only were Watson and Crick embarrassed, they were put in a penalty box. Word came down from Sir Lawrence that they were to stop working on DNA. Their model-building components were packed up and sent to Wilkins and Franklin in London. Adding to Watson's dismay was the news that Linus Pauling was coming over from Caltech to lecture in England, which would likely catalyze his own attempt to solve the structure of DNA. Fortunately, the U.S. State Department came to the rescue. In the weirdness engendered by red-baiting and McCarthyism, Pauling was stopped at the airport in New York and had his passport confiscated because he had been spouting enough pacifist opinions that the FBI thought he might be a threat to the country if allowed to travel. So he never got the chance to discuss the crystallography work done in England, thus helping the U.S. lose the race to figure out DNA. Watson and Crick were able to monitor some of Pauling's progress through his son Peter, who was a young student in their Cambridge lab. Watson found him amiable and fun. The conversation could dwell on the comparative virtues of girls from England, the continent, and California, he recalled. But one day in December 1952, young Pauling wandered into the lab, put his feet up on a desk, and dropped the news that Watson had been dreading. In his hand was a letter from his father, in which he mentioned that he had come up with a structure for DNA and was about to publish it. Linus Pauling's paper arrived in Cambridge in early February. Peter got a copy first and sauntered into the lab to tell Watson and Crick that his father's solution was similar to the one they had tried, a three-chain helix with a backbone in the center. Watson grabbed the paper from Peter's coat pocket and began to read. "'At once I felt something was not right,' he recalled. "'I could not pinpoint the mistake, however,' until I looked at the illustrations for several minutes. Watson realized that some of the atomic connections in Pauling's proposed model would not be stable. As he discussed it with Crick and others in the lab, they became convinced that Pauling had made a big blooper. They got so excited they quit work early that afternoon to dash off to the Eagle. The moment its doors opened for the evening, we were there to drink a toast to the Pauling failure Watson said. Instead of Sherry, I let Francis buy me a whiskey. The Secret of Life. They knew they could no longer waste time or continue to honor the edict that they defer to Wilkins and Franklin. So Watson took the train down to London one afternoon to see them, carrying his early copy of Pauling's paper. Wilkins was out when he arrived. So he ambled, uninvited, into the lab of Franklin, who was bending over a light box measuring the latest of her ever sharper X-ray images of DNA. She gave him an angry look, but he launched into a summary of Pauling's paper. For a few moments they argued about whether DNA was likely to be a helix, with Franklin still dubious. Interrupting her harangue, I asserted that the simplest form for any regular polymeric molecule, was a helix, Watson recalled. Rosie by then was hardly able to control her temper, and her voice rose as she told me that the stupidity of my remarks would be obvious if I would stop blubbering and look at her X-ray evidence. The conversation spiraled downward, with Watson pointing out, correctly but impolitely, that as a good experimentalist, Franklin would be more successful if she knew how to collaborate with theorists. Suddenly, Rosie came from behind the lab bench that separated us and began moving toward me. Fearing that in her hot anger she might strike me, I grabbed up the Pauling manuscript and hastily retreated. Just as the confrontation climaxed, Wilkins walked by and whisked Watson off to have some tea and calm down. He confided that Franklin had taken some pictures of a wet form of DNA that provided new evidence of its structure. He then went into an adjacent room and retrieved a print of what became known as Photograph 51. Wilkins had gotten hold of the picture validly. He was the Ph.D. advisor of the student who had worked with Franklin to take it. Less proper was showing it to Watson, who recorded some of the key parameters and took them back to Cambridge to share with Crick. The photograph indicated that Franklin had been correct in arguing that the backbone strands of the structure were on the outside, like the strands of a spiral staircase, rather than inside of the molecule. But she was wrong in resisting the possibility that DNA was a helix. The black cross of reflections, which dominated the picture, could arise only from a helical structure, Watson immediately saw. A study of Franklin's notes show that even after Watson's visit, she was still many steps away from discerning the DNA structure. In the unheated train car back to Cambridge, Watson sketched ideas in the margins of his copy of the Times. He had to climb over the back gate into his residential college, which had locked up for the night. The next morning, when he went into the Cavendish lab, he encountered Sir Lawrence Bragg, who had demanded that he and Crick steer clear of DNA. But confronted with Watson's excited summary of what he had learned, and hearing of his desire to get back to model building, Sir Lawrence gave his assent. Watson rushed down the stairs to the machine shop to set them to work on making a new set of components. Watson and Crick soon got more of Franklin's data. She had submitted to Britain's Medical Research Council, a report on her work, and a member of the council shared it with them. Although Watson and Crick had not exactly stolen Franklin's findings, they had appropriated her work without her permission. By then, Watson and Crick had a pretty good idea of DNA's structure. It had two sugar-phosphate strands that twisted and spiraled to form a double-stranded helix. Protruding from these were the four bases in DNA— adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine, now commonly known by the letters A, T, G, and C. They came to agree with Franklin that the backbones were on the outside and the bases pointed inward, like a twisted ladder or spiral staircase. As Watson later admitted in a feeble attempt at graciousness, her past uncompromising statements on this matter thus reflected first-rate science, not the outpourings of a misguided feminist. They originally assumed that the bases would each be paired with themselves. For example, a rung that was made up of an adenine bonded to another adenine. But one day, Watson, using some cardboard models of bases that he cut out himself, began playing with different pairings. Suddenly, I became aware that an adenine-thymine pair held together by two hydrogen bonds, was identical in shape to a guanine-cytosine pair held together by at least two hydrogen bonds. He was lucky to work in a lab of scientists with different specialties. One of them, a quantum chemist, confirmed that adenine would attract thymine and guanine would attract cytosine. There was an exciting consequence of this structure. When the two strands split apart, they could perfectly replicate, because any half-rung would attract its natural partner. In other words, such a structure would permit the molecule to replicate itself and pass along the information encoded in its sequences. Watson returned to the machine shop to prod them to speed up production of the four types of bases for the model. By this point, the machinists were infused with his excitement and they finished soldering the shiny metal plates in a couple of hours. With all the parts now on hand, it took Watson only an hour to arrange them so that the atoms comported with the X-ray data and the laws of chemical bonds. In Watson's memorable and only slightly hyperbolic phrase in the double helix, Francis winged into the eagle to tell everyone within hearing distance that we had found the secret of life. The solution was too beautiful not to be true. The structure was perfect for the molecule's function. It could carry a code that it could replicate. Watson and Crick finished their paper on the last weekend of March, 1953. It was a mere 975 words, typed by Watson's sister, who was persuaded to do so by his argument that She was participating in perhaps the most famous event in biology since Darwin's book. Crick wanted to include an expanded section on the implications for heredity, but Watson convinced him that a shorter ending would actually carry more punch. Thus was produced one of the most significant sentences in science. It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. The Nobel Prize was awarded in 1962 to Watson, Crick, and Wilkins. Franklin was not eligible because she had died in 1958 at age 37 of ovarian cancer, likely caused by her exposure to radiation. If she had survived the Nobel Committee would have faced an awkward situation. Each prize can be awarded to only three winners. Two revolutions coincided in the 1950s. Mathematicians, including Claude Shannon and Alan Turing, showed that all information could be encoded by binary digits, known as bits. This led to a digital revolution, powered by circuits with on-off switches that processed information. Simultaneously, Watson and Crick discovered how instructions for building every cell in every form of life were encoded by the four-letter sequences of DNA. Thus was born an information age based on digital coding, 0100110111001, and genetic coding. A-C-T-G-G-T-A-G-A-T-T-A-C-A. The flow of history is accelerated when two rivers converge. Chapter 4. The Education of a Biochemist. Girls Do Science. Jennifer Doudna would later meet James Watson, work with him on occasion and be exposed to all of his personal complexity. In some ways, he would be like an intellectual godfather, at least until he began saying things that seemed to emanate from the dark side of the Force. As Chancellor Palpatine said to Anakin Skywalker, the dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities that some consider to be unnatural. But her reactions when she first read his book as a sixth grader were far simpler it sparked the realization that it was possible to peel back the layers of nature's beauty and discover, as she says, how and why things worked at the most fundamental and inner level. Life was made up of molecules. The chemical components and structure of these molecules governed what they would do. The book also sparked the feeling that science could be fun. All of the previous science books she read had Pictures of emotionless men wearing lab coats and glasses. But the double helix painted a more vibrant picture. It made me realize that science can be very exciting, like being on a trail of a cool mystery, and you're getting a clue here and a clue there, and then you put the pieces together. The tale of Watson and Crick and Franklin was one of competition and collaboration, of letting data dance with theory and of being in a race with rival labs. All of that resonated with her as a kid, and it would continue to do so throughout her career. In high school, Doudna got a chance to do the standard biology experiments involving DNA, including one that involved breaking apart salmon sperm cells and stirring their gooey contents with a glass rod. She was inspired by an energetic chemistry teacher and by a woman who gave a lecture on the biochemical reasons that cells become cancerous. It reinforced my realization that women could be scientists. There was a thread that wove together her childhood curiosity about the eyeless spiders in the lava tubes, the sleeping grass that curled when you touched it, and the human cells that became cancerous. They were all connected to the detective story of the double helix, She decided that she wanted to study chemistry at college, but like many female scientists of the time, she met resistance. When she explained her college goals to her school's guidance counselor, an older Japanese-American man with traditional attitudes, he began to grunt, no, no, no. She paused and looked at him. Girls don't do science, he asserted. He discouraged her from even taking the college board chemistry test, Do you really know what that is, what that test is for, he asked her. It hurt me, Doudna recalled, but it also stiffened her resolve. Yes, I will do it, she remembers telling herself. I will show you. If I want to do science, I am going to do it. She applied to Pomona College in California, which had a good program in chemistry and biochemistry, was admitted, and enrolled in the fall of 1981. Pomona. At first, she was unhappy. Having skipped a grade in school, she was now only 17. I was suddenly a small fish in a very big pond, she recalled, and I doubted I had what it took. She was homesick and once again felt out of place. Many of her classmates came from wealthy Southern California families and had their own cars, while she was on a scholarship and worked part-time to pay her living expenses. In those days, it was expensive to phone home. My parents didn't have a lot of money, so they told me to call Collect, but only once a month. Having willed herself to major in chemistry, she began to doubt she could handle it. Perhaps her high school counselor had been right. Her general chemistry class had 200 students, most of whom had gotten a five on the AP chemistry test. It made me question whether I'd set my sights on something that was just not achievable by me, she said. Because of her competitive streak, the field had little appeal if she was going to be just a mediocre student. I thought, I don't want to become a chemist if I'm not going to have a shot at being at the top she thought about changing her major to French. I went to talk to my French teacher about that, and she asked what I was majoring in. When Doudna replied that it was chemistry, the teacher told her to stick with it. She was really insistent. She said, if you major in chemistry, you'll be able to do all sorts of things. If you major in French, you will be able to be a French teacher. Her outlook brightened the summer after her freshman year, when she got a job working in the lab of her family's friend Don Hemis, the University of Hawaii biology professor who had taken her on nature walks. He was using electron microscopy to investigate the movement of chemicals inside cells. Jennifer was fascinated by the ability to look inside cells and study what all the small particles were doing, he recalled. Hemis was also studying the evolution of tiny shells, An active scuba diver, he would scoop up samples of the smallest ones, almost microscopic in size, and his students would help him embed them in resin and slice thin sections for analysis under an electron microscope. He taught us how to use various kinds of chemicals to stain the samples differently so we could look at shell development, explained Doudna. She kept a lab notebook for the first time. In chemistry class at college, most of the experiments were conducted by following a recipe. There was a rigid protocol and a right answer. The work in Don's lab wasn't like that, she said. Unlike in class, we didn't know the answer we were supposed to get. It gave her a taste of the thrill of discovery. It also helped her see what it would be like to be part of the community of scientists making advances and piecing them together to discover the ways that nature worked. When she returned to Pomona in the fall, she made friends, fit in better, and became more confident in her ability to do chemistry. As part of her work-study program, she had a series of jobs in the college chemistry labs. Most did not engage her because they did not explore how chemistry intersected with biology but that changed after her junior year when she got a summer position in the lab of her advisor, Sharon Panasenko, a biochemistry professor. It was more challenging for women biochemists at universities back then, and I admired her not only for being a good scientist, but also for being a role model. Panasenko was studying a topic that aligned with Doudna's interest in the mechanisms of living cells, how some bacteria found in soil are able to communicate so that they can join together when they are starved for nutrients. They form a commune called a fruiting body. Millions of the bacteria figure out how to aggregate by sending out chemical signals. Panasenko enlisted Daugna to help figure out how those chemical signals worked. I have to warn you, Panasenko told her that a technician in my lab has been working on growing these bacteria for six months, and he hasn't been able to make it work. Doudna began trying to grow the bacteria in large baking pans, rather than the usual Petri dishes. One night, she put her preparations in the incubator. I came in the next day, and when I peeled back the foil on the baking dish that lacked nutrients, I was stunned to see these beautiful structures. They looked like little footballs, She had succeeded where the other technician had failed. It was an incredible moment and made me think I could do science. The experiments yielded strong enough results that Panasenko was able to publish a research paper in the Journal of Bacteriology in which she acknowledged Doudna as one of four lab assistants whose preliminary observations made significant contributions to this project. It was the first time Doudna's name appeared in a scientific journal. Harvard. When it came time to go to graduate school, she did not initially consider Harvard, despite being the top student in her physical chemistry class. But her father pushed her to apply. "'Come on, Dad,' she pleaded. "'I will never get in.' To which he replied, "'You certainly won't get in if you don't apply.' She did get in, and Harvard even offered her a generous stipend. She spent part of the summer traveling in Europe on the money she had saved from her work-study program in Pomona. When her trip ended in July 1985, she went right to Harvard so that she could begin working before classes started. Like other universities, Harvard required graduate chemistry students to work each semester in the lab of a different professor. The goal of these rotations was to allow students to learn different techniques and then select a lab for their dissertation research. Doudna called Roberto Coulter, who was head of the graduate studies program, to ask if she could begin her rotations in his lab. A young Spanish specialist in bacteria, he had a big smile, an elegant sweep of hair, wireless glasses, and a bouncy style of talking. His lab was international with many of the researchers from Spain or Latin America, and Doudna was struck by how young and politically active they were. I had been highly influenced by the media's presentation of scientists as old white men, and I thought that's who I would be interacting with at Harvard. That wasn't my experience at all at the Coulter Lab. Her ensuing career, from CRISPR to coronavirus, would reflect the global nature of modern science. Coulter assigned Doudna to study how bacteria make molecules that are toxic to other bacteria. She was responsible for cloning, making an exact DNA copy of, genes from the bacteria, and testing their functions. She thought of a novel way to set up the process, but Coulter declared it wouldn't work. Doudna was stubborn and went ahead with her idea. I did it my way and got the clone, she told him. He was surprised but supportive. It was a step in overcoming the insecurity that lurked inside her. Dowdna eventually decided to do her dissertation work in the lab of Jack Shostak, an intellectually versatile Harvard biologist who was studying DNA in yeast. A Canadian-American of Polish descent, Shostak was one of the young geniuses then in Harvard's Department of Molecular Biology. Even though he was managing a lab, Shostak was still working as a bench scientist, so Doudna got to watch him perform experiments, hear his thought process, and admire the way he took risks. The key aspect of his intellect, she realized, was his ability to make unexpected connections between different fields. Her experiments gave her a glimpse of how basic science can be turned into applied science. Yeast cells are very efficient at taking up pieces of DNA and integrating them into their genetic makeup. So she worked on a way to make use of this fact. She engineered strands of DNA that ended with a sequence that matched a sequence in the yeast. With a little electric shock, she opened up tiny passageways in the cell wall of the yeast, allowing the DNA that she made to wriggle inside. It then recombined into the yeast's DNA. She had made a tool that could edit the genes of yeast. Chapter 5. The Human Genome James and Rufus Watson In 1986, when Doudna was working in Jack Shostak's lab, a massive international science collaboration was being hatched. It was called The Human Genome Project, and its goal was to figure out the sequence of the 3 billion base pairs in our DNA and map the more than 20,000 genes that these base pairs encode. One of the many roots of the Human Genome Project involved Doudna's childhood hero James Watson and his son Rufus. The provocative author of The Double Helix was the director of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, a haven for biomedical research and seminars on a 110-acre wooded campus on the north shore of Long Island. Founded in 1890, it has a history of important research. It was there in the 1940s that Salvador Luria and Max Delbrook led a study group on phages that included the young Watson. But it is also haunted by more controversial ghosts. From 1904 until 1939, under director Charles Davenport it served as a center for eugenics, producing studies asserting that different races and ethnic groups had genetic differences in such traits as intelligence and criminality. By the end of Watson's tenure as director there from 1968 to 2007, his own pronouncements on race and genetics would revive these ghosts. In addition to being a research center, Cold Spring Harbor hosts around 30 meetings a year on selected topics. In 1986, Watson decided to launch an annual series titled The Biology of Genomes. The agenda for the first year's meeting was to plan the Human Genome Project. On the day the meeting began, Watson made a shocking announcement to the gathered scientists. His son Rufus had broken out of a psychiatric hospital where he had been committed after trying to break a window and jump to his death from the World Trade Center. He was now missing, and Watson was leaving to help find him. Born in 1970, Rufus had the lean face, tousled hair, and lopsided grin of his father. He was also very bright. I was very pleased, Watson says, because for a while he would go bird watching with me, and we had some relationship. Birdwatching was something that Watson had done with his own father as a smart, skinny kid in Chicago. But when Rufus was young, he began to show signs of not being able to interact well with people. And in 10th grade at his boarding school, Exeter, he had a psychotic incident and was sent home. A few days later, he went to the top of the World Trade Center with the plan of ending his life. Doctors diagnosed him as schizophrenic. The elder Watson cried. I had never seen Jim weep before or ever since in his life, his wife Elizabeth says. Watson missed most of the Cold Spring Harbor genome meeting while he and Elizabeth joined the hunt for their son. He was finally found wandering in the woods. Watson's science had intersected with real life. The massive international project to map the human genome would no longer be for him an abstract, academic pursuit. It was personal and it would ingrain in him a belief bordering on obsession in the power of genetics to explain human life. Nature, not nurture, made Rufus the way he was, and it also made different groups of people the way they were. Or so it appeared to Watson, who saw things through glasses filtered by his DNA discovery and his son's condition. Rufus is as smart as can be, very perceptive, and can be caring but also intense in his anger, Watson says. My wife and I hoped when he was young we could set up the right environment for him to succeed. But I soon realized that his troubles lay in his genes. That drove me to lead the Human Genome Project. The only way I could understand our son and help him live at a normal level was to decipher the genome. The Race to Sequence When the Human Genome Project was formally launched in 1990, Watson was anointed its first director. All the major players were men. Watson was eventually succeeded by Francis Collins, who in 2009 became the director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Among the whiz kids was the charismatic and driven Eric Lander, a breathtakingly brilliant Brooklyn-bred high school math team captain who did a doctoral dissertation on coding theory as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and then decided to become a geneticist at MIT. The most controversial player was the wild and abrasive Craig Venter, who had worked in a U.S. Navy field hospital as a draftee during the Tet Offensive of the Vietnam War, had attempted suicide by swimming out to sea, and then became a biochemist and biotech entrepreneur. The project began as a collaboration but as with many tales of discovery and innovation, it also became a competition. When Venter found different ways to do the sequencing cheaper and faster than everyone else, he broke away to form a private company, Celera, which sought to profit from patenting its discoveries. Watson enlisted Lander to help reorganize the public effort and speed up its work. Lander bruised some egos but he was able to assure that it could keep pace with Venter's private effort. In early 2000, as the competition became a public spectacle, President Bill Clinton pushed for a truce between Venter and Collins, who had been sniping at each other in the press. Collins had likened Venter's sequencing to Cliff's Notes and Mad Magazine, Venter had ridiculed the government project for costing ten times more to do work at a fraction of the speed. Fix it. Make these guys work together, Clinton told his top science advisor. So Collins and Venter met for pizza and beer to see if they could reach an accord on sharing the credit and agreeing to make public, rather than exploiting for private use, what would soon be the world's most important biological data set, After a few more private meetings, Clinton was able to host Collins and Venter at a White House ceremony to announce the initial results of the Human Genome Project and the agreement to share credit. James Watson hailed the decision. The events of the past few weeks have shown that those who work for the public good do not necessarily fall behind those driven by personal gain, he said. I was editor of Time then, and we had been working with Venter for weeks to have exclusive access to his story and feature him on the cover. He was an enticing cover boy because by then he had used his wealth from Solera to become a flashy yacht owner, competitive surfer, and party giver. The week that we were closing the story, I got an unexpected phone call from Vice President Al Gore. He pushed me, very hard and persuasively, to put Francis Collins on the cover as well. Venter resisted. He had been forced to share credit with Collins at a press conference, but he did not want to also share a time cover. He eventually agreed, but at the photo session, he could not help ragging on Collins for not being able to keep pace with Solera's sequencing. Collins smiled and said nothing. Today, we are learning the language in which God created life, President Clinton proclaimed at the White House ceremony featuring Venter, Collins, and Watson. The announcement captured the public imagination. The New York Times ran a front-page banner headline, Genetic Code of Human Life is Cracked by Scientists. The story, written by the distinguished biology journalist Nicholas Wade, began... In an achievement that represents a pinnacle of human self-knowledge, two rival groups of scientists said today that they had deciphered the hereditary script, the set of instructions that defines the human organism. Doudna spent time discussing with Shostak, Church, and others at Harvard whether the $3 billion dedicated to the Human Genome Project was worth it. Church was skeptical at the time, and remains so. The $3 billion didn't buy us much, he says. We didn't discover anything. None of the technologies survived. Having a map of DNA did not, it turned out, lead to most of the grand medical breakthroughs that had been predicted. More than 4,000 disease-causing DNA mutations were found, but no cure sprang forth for even the most simple of single gene disorders, such as Tay-Sachs, sickle cell, or Huntington's. The men who had sequenced DNA taught us how to read the code of life, but the more important step would be learning how to write that code. This would require a different set of tools, ones that would involve the worker bee molecule that Doudna found more interesting than DNA. Chapter 6. RNA the central dogma. Accomplishing the goal of being able to write as well as to read human genes required a shift in focus from DNA to its less famous sibling that actually carries out its coded instructions. RNA, ribonucleic acid, is a molecule in living cells that is similar to DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid but it has one more oxygen atom in its sugar-phosphate backbone and a difference in one of its four bases. DNA may be the world's most famous molecule, so well known that it appears on magazine covers and is used as a metaphor for traits that are ingrained in a society or organization. But like many famous siblings, DNA doesn't do much work. It mainly stays at home in the nucleus of our cells, not venturing forth. Its primary activity is protecting the information it encodes and occasionally replicating itself. RNA, on the other hand, actually goes out and does real work. Instead of just sitting at home curating information, it makes real products, such as proteins. Pay attention to it. From CRISPR to COVID, it will be the starring molecule in this book and in Doudna's career. At the time of the Human Genome Project, RNA was seen as mainly a messenger molecule that carries instructions from the DNA that is nestled in the nucleus of the cells. A small segment of DNA that encodes a gene is transcribed into a snippet of RNA, which then travels to the manufacturing region of the cell. There, this messenger RNA facilitates the assembly of the proper sequence of amino acids to make a specified protein. These proteins come in many types. Fibrous proteins, for example, form structures such as bones, tissues, muscles, hair, fingernails, tendons, and skin cells. Membrane proteins relay signals within cells. Above all is the most fascinating type of proteins, enzymes. They serve as catalysts. They spark and accelerate and modulate the chemical reactions in all living things. Almost every action that takes place in a cell needs to be catalyzed by an enzyme. Pay attention to enzymes. They will be RNA's co-stars and dancing partners in this book. Francis Crick, five years after discovering the structure of DNA, came up with a name for this process of genetic information moving from DNA to RNA to the building of proteins. He dubbed it the central dogma of biology. He later conceded that dogma, which implies an unchanging and unquestioned faith, was a poor choice of words. But the word central was apt. Even as the dogma was modified, the process remained central to biology. Ribozymes One of the first tweaks to the central dogma came when Thomas Cech and Sidney Altman independently discovered that proteins were not the only molecules in the cell that could be enzymes. In work done in the early 1980s that would win them the Nobel Prize, they made the surprising discovery that some forms of RNA could likewise be enzymes. Specifically, they found that some RNA molecules can split themselves by sparking a chemical reaction. They dubbed these catalytic RNAs ribozymes, a word conjured up by combining ribonucleic acid with enzyme. Cech and Altman made this discovery by studying introns. Some parts of DNA sequences do not code instructions for how to make proteins. When these sequences are transcribed into RNA molecules, they clog things up so they have to be sliced out before the RNA can scurry out on its mission to direct the making of proteins. The cut-and-paste process of slicing out these introns and then splicing the useful bits of RNA back together requires a catalyst, and that role is usually performed by a protein enzyme. But Check and Altman discovered that there were certain RNA introns that were self-splicing, This had pretty cool implications. If some RNA molecules could store genetic information and also act as a catalyst to spur chemical reactions, they might be more fundamental to the origins of life than DNA, which cannot naturally replicate themselves without the presence of proteins to serve as a catalyst. RNA rather than DNA when Doudna's lab rotation ended in the spring of 1986, she asked Jack Shostak if she could stay on and do her doctoral research under him. Shostak agreed, but he added a caveat. He was no longer going to focus on DNA in yeast. While other biochemists were getting excited about sequencing DNA for the Human Genome Project, he had decided to shift his lab's attention to RNA which he believed might reveal secrets about the biggest of all biological mysteries, the origins of life. He was intrigued, he told Doudna, by the discoveries that Cech and Altman had made about how certain RNAs had the catalytic powers of enzymes. His goal was to pin down whether these ribozymes could use this power to replicate. Did this piece of RNA have the chemical chops to copy itself? He asked her. He suggested that should be the focus of her Ph.D. dissertation. She found Shostak's enthusiasm infectious and signed up to be the first graduate student in his lab to work on RNA. When I was taught biology, we learned about the structure and code of DNA, and we learned about how proteins do all the heavy lifting in cells, and RNA was treated as this dull intermediary sort of a middle manager, she recalls. I was quite surprised to find that there was this young genius, Jack Shostak at Harvard, who wanted to focus 100% on RNA because he thought it was the key to understanding the origin of life. For both Shostak, who was well-established, and Doudna, who wasn't, switching to a focus on RNA was risky. Instead of following the herd doing DNA... Shostak recalled, We felt we were pioneering something new, exploring a frontier that was a little bit neglected, but we all thought was exciting. This was long before RNA was being considered as a technology to interfere with gene expression or deliver edits to human genes. Shostak and Doudna pursued the subject out of pure curiosity about how nature works. Shostak had a guiding principle, Never do something that a thousand other people are doing. That appealed to Doudna. It was like when I was on the soccer field and wanted to play a position that the other kids didn't, she says. I learned from Jack that there was more of a risk, but also more of a reward, if you ventured into a new area. By this point, she knew that the most important clue for understanding a natural phenomenon was to figure out the structure of the molecules involved, That would require her to learn some of the techniques that Watson and Crick and Franklin used to unravel the structure of DNA. If she and Shostak succeeded, it could be a significant step in answering one of the grandest of all biological questions, perhaps the grandest. How did life begin? The Origins of Life Shostak's excitement about discovering how life began taught Doudna a second big lesson, in addition to taking risks by moving into new fields. Ask big questions. Even though Shostak liked diving into the details of experiments, he was a grand thinker, someone who was constantly pursuing truly profound inquiries. Why else would you do science? He asked Doudna. It was an injunction that became one of her own guiding principles, There are some truly grand questions that our mortal minds may never be able to answer. How did the universe begin? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is consciousness? Others may be wrestled into submission by the end of this century. Is the universe deterministic? Do we have free will? Of the really big ones, the closest to being solved is how life began. The central dogma of biology requires the presence of DNA, RNA, and proteins. Because it's unlikely that all three of these sprang forth at the exact same time from the primordial stew, a hypothesis arose in the early 1960s, formulated independently by the ubiquitous Francis Crick and others, that there was a simpler precursor system. Crick's hypothesis was that, early on in the history of Earth, RNA was able to replicate itself. That leaves the question of where the first RNA came from. Some speculate it came from outer space. But the simpler answer may be that the early Earth contained the chemical building blocks of RNA, and it didn't require anything other than natural random mixing to jostle them together. The year that Doudna joined Shostak's lab, Biochemist Walter Gilbert dubbed this hypothesis the RNA world. An essential quality of living things is that they have a method for creating more organisms akin to themselves. They can reproduce. Therefore, if you want to make the argument that RNA might be the precursor molecule leading to the origin of life, it would help to show how it can replicate itself. This was the project that Shostak and Doudna embarked upon. Doudna used many tactics to create an RNA enzyme, or ribozyme, that could stitch together little RNA pieces. Eventually, she and Shostak were able to engineer a ribozyme that could splice together a copy of itself. This reaction demonstrates the feasibility of RNA-catalyzed RNA replications, she and Shostak wrote in a 1998 paper for Nature. The biochemist Richard Lifton later called this paper a technical tour de force. Doudna became a rising star in the rarefied realm of RNA research. That was still a bit of a biological backwater, but over the next two decades, the understanding of how little strands of RNA behaved would become increasingly important, both to the field of gene editing and to the fight against coronaviruses. As a young PhD student, Doudna mastered the special combination of skills that distinguished Shostak and other great scientists. She was good at doing hands-on experiments and also at asking the big questions. She knew that God was in the details, but also in the big picture. Jennifer was fantastically good at the bench because she was fast and sharp and could seemingly get anything to work, Shostak says. But we talked quite a bit about why the really big questions are the important questions. Doudna also proved herself a team player, which counted a lot for Shostak, who shared that trait with George Church and some other scientists at the Harvard Medical School campus. This was reflected in the number of co-authors she had on most of her papers. In scientific publications, the first author listed is usually the younger researcher most responsible for the hands-on experiments, and the last is the principal investigator, or head of the lab. Those listed in the middle are generally ordered by the contributions they made. On one of the important papers that she helped produce for the journal Science in 1989, Doudna's name appears in the middle of the list because she was mentoring a lucky Harvard undergraduate who worked in the lab part-time and she felt that the student should be the featured lead author. During her final years in Shostak's lab, her name was on four academic papers in prestigious journals, all describing aspects of how RNA molecules can replicate themselves. What also stood out for Shostak was Doudna's willingness, even eagerness, to tackle challenges. That became evident near the end of her tenure in Shostak's lab in 1989, She realized that in order to understand the workings of a self-splicing piece of RNA, she would have to fully discern its structure, atom by atom. At that time, RNA structure was viewed as so difficult that it was maybe impossible to figure out, Shostak recalled. Hardly anyone was trying anymore. Meeting James Watson The first time that Jennifer Doudna made a presentation at a scientific conference, it was at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, and James Watson was, as usual, sitting in the front row as the host. It was the summer of 1987, and he had organized a seminar to discuss the evolutionary events that may have given rise to the living organisms that now exist on Earth. In other words, how did life begin? The focus of the conference was on the recent discoveries showing that certain RNA molecules could replicate themselves. Because Showstack was unavailable, an invitation went out to Doudna, then only 23, to present the work that she and he were doing on engineering a self-replicating RNA molecule. When she got the letter signed by Watson, addressed to Dear Ms. Doudna, she was not yet Dr. Doudna, she not only immediately accepted, she had it framed. The talk she gave, based on a paper she had written with Shostak, was highly technical. We describe deletions and substitution mutations in the catalytic and substrate domains of the self-splicing intron, she began. That's the type of sentence that excites research biologists, and Watson was intently taking notes. I was so incredibly nervous that my palms were sweating, she recalls. But at the end, Watson congratulated her, and Tom Check, whose work on introns had paved the way for Doudna and Shostak's paper, leaned over and whispered, Good job. While at the meeting, Doudna took a walk down Bungtown Road, which wanders through the campus. Along the way, she saw a slightly stooped woman walking toward her, It was the biologist Barbara McClintock, who had been a researcher at Cold Spring Harbor for more than 40 years and had recently been awarded the Nobel Prize for her discovery of transposons, known as jumping genes, that can change their position in a genome. Doudna paused but was too shy to introduce herself. I felt like I was in the presence of a goddess, she says, still in awe. Here's this woman who's so famous and so incredibly influential in science, acting so unassuming and walking toward her lab thinking about her next experiment. She was what I wanted to be. Doudna would stay in touch with Watson, attending many of the Cold Spring Harbor meetings he organized. Over the years, he would evolve into an increasingly controversial character because of his unmoored blurtings about racial genetic differences. Doudna generally refrained from letting his behavior diminish her respect for his scientific achievements. When I saw him, he often would say things he thought were provocative, she says with a slightly defensive laugh. That was his way. You know how it is. Despite his frequent public comments about women's looks, beginning with Rosalind Franklin in the Double Helix, he was a good mentor to women. He was very supportive to a close woman friend of mine who was a postdoc, Doudna says. That influenced my opinion of him. Chapter 7. Twists and Folds Structural Biology Ever since she puzzled over the touch-sensitive leaves of the sleeping grass that she found on her walks as a child in Hawaii, Doudna had been passionately curious about the underlying mechanisms of nature. What made the fern-like leaves curl when touched? How did chemical reactions cause biological activity? She learned how to pause, like we all used to do as children, and wonder about how things worked. The field of biochemistry provided many answers by showing how the chemical molecules in living cells behave. But there was a specialty that looked even deeper into nature. Structural biology. Wielding imaging techniques, such as X-ray crystallography, which is what Rosalind Franklin used to find evidence of the structure of DNA, structural biologists tried to discover the three-dimensional shape of molecules. Linus Pauling worked out the spiral structure of proteins in the early 1950s, which was followed by Watson and Crick's paper, On the double helix structure of DNA. Doudna realized that she would need to learn more about structural biology if she wanted to truly understand how some RNA molecules could reproduce themselves. To figure out how these RNA do chemistry, she says, "I needed to know what they looked like." Specifically, she needed to figure out the folds and twists of the three-dimensional structure of self-splicing RNA. She was aware that such work would be an echo of that done by Franklin on DNA, and the parallel pleased her. She had a similar kind of question about the chemical structure of a molecule that was at the heart of all of life, Doudna says. She believed that its structure would provide all sorts of insights. Doudna also sensed that once you figured out the structure of a ribozyme, it might lead to groundbreaking genetic technologies The citation for the Nobel Prize that Thomas Cech won with Sidney Altman hinted at what this might be. A futurist possibility is to correct certain genetic disorders. Such a future use of gene shears will require that we learn more about the molecular mechanisms. Gene shears. Yes, the Nobel Committee was prescient. This pursuit meant that it was time to move on from the lab of Jack Shostak who admitted to not being a visual thinker or expert in structural biology. So in 1991, Doudna considered where she could do her postdoctoral work. There was one obvious choice. The structural biologist, who had just shared the Nobel Prize for discovering the catalytic RNA that she and Shostak had been studying, Thomas Cech of the University of Colorado in Boulder, who was using X-ray crystallography, in order to explore each nook and cranny of the structure of RNA. Thomas Check. Doudna already knew Cech. He was the one who whispered, good job, after her sweaty-palmed lecture at Cold Spring Harbor in the summer of 1987. She had met him again when she took a trip to Colorado that year. Because we were sort of friendly competitors, both racing to make discoveries about the self-splicing introns, I sent him a note, she recalled. It was a real note, on paper, because email was not yet common. She wrote that she was going to be traveling through Boulder and asked if it would be possible to visit his lab. To her surprise, he quickly got back to her, telephoning one day when she was at work in Shostak's lab. Hey, Tom Cech is on the phone for you, the colleague who picked up the phone called out. Her lab mates gave her a curious look but she just shrugged. They met in Boulder on a Saturday. Cech had brought his two-year-old daughter to the lab, and he bounced her on his knee as he talked to Doudna, who was completely charmed by both his mind and his fatherly instincts. Their encounter was an example of the mix of competition and collegiality that marks scientific research and many other endeavors. I think the reason Tom met with me